Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No overproduced intro, nothing to wait through, just talking mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number nine of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before I get into this issue, a spoiler warning, if you haven't read this issue or any of the past Mage comic series, stop listening now and just go read the books. I promise that, like other episodes, I'm going to totally spoil this issue and parts of past issues from The Hero Discovered and Hero Defined completely and totally. So you've been warned. Before I get into it, I want to thank Eli and Manis over at the Can I Thwip It podcast for hosting a super fun podcast crossover event. Part of the reason this pod is delayed is I was doing some travel, dropped in uh, into their hood, dropped in for an evening of comics talk, and some amazing Howlin' Ray's Nashville hot chicken. Eli had some super cool issues to look at, including this lush Stan Lee Jack Kirby paperback of the Silver Surfer, the ultimate cosmic experience. And Manus was all over what's going on with Spider-Man, Venom, and even a peek into what Brian Michael Bendis is doing with the world's strongest Boy Scout, Superman, now that he's over at DC. Of course, we talked a lot about Mage with a side trip about Jim Ma Food, and in the spirit of Matt Wagner's recently announced Mage Memories Challenge, I asked the guys to share with me their favorite mage moments on the pod. I also want to give a shout out to Steve Fritzinger, who was a guest here a few episodes back, talking about how he crafts glowing Excalibur bats for his mage cosplay. Steve was in the area, but left town before we were recording. Wish we could have had you join us, Steve. Now, I mentioned a mage memories challenge. This is a challenge that Matt Wagner posted on his Facebook page, on his Facebook account, around June 22nd. So, He might already have enough entries for the incantations column in the comic. But here's pretty much what he had to say in his original post. He had talked about how lately there's a lot of those top 10 favorite or most influential books, movies, albums, comic covers. And he proposed that he wants to do a Mage Moments Considering that Mage has been around for over 30 years and three distinct incarnations, he's sure that most readers are bound to have a few narrative moments or particularly fond or memorable instances about either enjoying or collecting the series. And he invited the readership to share those Mage moments in incantations. And you're not limited to one memory. It's not limited to people who've not been uh, shown in the letter column yet. He just uh, was asking that people don't post them on Facebook. If you'd been meaning to write incantations but hadn't done so yet, now is your chance. Now, this is a great way to get a mage postcard, and you should mail any of your mage moments to mageincantations at gmail.com. This could be ongoing through the end of the series. It might just be something that he's collecting to share in one specific letter column, or who knows. But if you've sent in some mage memories and you don't get them published in the comic, or you're late, or you just want to share your favorite mage moments, panels, scenes, whatever, with other mage fans, I'm going to highlight mage memories here on the podcast. Here's how you can do this. There are two ways you can just send in your recorded feedback. So... I can actually have the audio of your mage moment to share on the podcast. One way is to call 440-941-6201 and leave a voicemail. As long as the quality of the connection is good, I should get a transcript and a recording. So again, I could either use your audio feedback in the podcast or just quote you directly. At the very end of your message, add your name and email address so I can contact you in case your feedback is too garbled to use. Sometimes those uh, transcription services automated don't work very well. Leave a short break between your mage moments and your contact info, and that would make it easier for me to share your audio on the podcast. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be to record and email your thoughts in. You could use something like your smartphone's voice memo app to record your thoughts, 
and then just email them to me at kevin at magetheherodescribed.com. If the audio file is too big to email, just upload them to a free Dropbox account and send me a link. Another way to share your thoughts is on the podcast's Facebook page. That's at facebook.com forward slash mage the hero described or through Instagram at the account mage hero described. And of course, you can just email something if you just want to type something up. You can just email them into kevin at mage the hero described dot com. So I, uh, I think that's everything. Uh, let's dive into issue number nine. At the end of issue number eight, Kevin and Miranda have just survived a showdown with a Yowler ogre. However, their house has been completely destroyed in the process. A father and daughter move on, unobserved by the neighbors who've already begun to forget details about the family who would live there, but they are observed by the two Gracklethorns, Alexi and Carol. Alexi, the Umbra Sprite's muscle, is unimpressed certain that the Pendragon will be easy to defeat. Meanwhile, Carol is almost awed by his power and tells Alexi not to be overconfident. But Alexi wants none of her shit, shuts her down, striding back into the misty fairy realms to return to the Umbra Sprite's headquarters at Archeron Insurance, which appears to be in San Francisco. Meanwhile, Magda and Hugo have been abducted by the Umbra Sprite's minions and have been placed into a luxurious suite. They're unharmed, but warned not to attempt any escape. Like the Umbra Sprite's previous headquarters in the Styx Hotel and Casino, this structure is full of magical dangers, and physics simply do not operate here like they do in the normal world. Doors open onto endless pits, up is down, down is up, cats and dogs no doubt living together, monsters residing around every corner, and so on. Last of all in that issue, as Carol reports back to the Umbra Sprite, we see the Umbra Sprite beginning to sprout snakes from its fingers and eyes, proclaiming that it is feeling a presence it hasn't felt in many years. In issue number nine, we get three different storylines uh, as a side effect of how everyone's been split up. Kevin and Miranda, Magda and Hugo, and the Gracklethorns. I like to think of this as everybody spending a little quality family time. Father and daughter, mother and son, and... Well, the Gracklethorn sisters aren't especially spending quality time together. They're mostly fighting, but it's family time. We pick up in this issue with Kevin and Miranda driving through the fairy realms. Dark and misty and full of dead leafless trees, they are driving in a truck with the license plate Edsel 8. Uh, which is a great continuation from what we saw in the beginning of the series when they were driving a blue VW Beetle with the license plate Edsel 7. And Kevin tells Miranda that they are looking to find her brother, or at least where he is. Kevin leaves Miranda in the truck, which seems worrisome uh, to say the least, but he assures her that the truck has a ton of protective charms on it so no one can get in. She climbs in the back seat as Kevin opens the truck to reveal some supplies, not the least of which includes at least 12 baseball bats, one of which he grabs. Now, the original Excalibur bat carried by Edsel and the hero discovered was an actual mystical weapon, the incarnation or manifestation of the fabled Excalibur. When Kevin and Mirth first encounter Edsel, she has pulled it from her car to use it as a weapon when she has been attacked by a grackle flint. Shortly after the battle, Mirth enchants this bat, saying it will have the effect now of a cattle prod. And as he imbues it with magic, the bat now glows an iconic green. This is the color it will remain throughout Edsel's time carrying the weapon. Later in Hero Discovered, Mirth tells Kevin that the enchantment he put on the bat was actually a concealment spell, to hide the spark that had begun to glow within the weapon the moment Edsel had met him, she being the lady in the lake to Kevin's Arthur Pendragon, the carrier of his weapon. That bat, that weapon was destroyed in the build-up to the denouement of Mage to the Hero Defined. Overwhelmed by the power that Kevin had poured through it and being ill-suited to power 
intended to heal instead of damage, the bat shattered, was completely destroyed. And that act was critical in Kevin taking the next step of understanding the power of Excalibur, that his heroic power was inside him and not in the bat. And even at the end of The Hero Defined, we see him to begin to manifest this power, his lightning, without the bat. Still, he is most familiar with and comfortable with identifying as the avatar of the of the Pendragon. He did as much even earlier in this series when facing off with Arishkagel, who knows him as and considers him as the incarnation of Gilgamesh. Uh, but he basically lets her know, hey, I don't I don't recognize that. Uh, he's basically saying, I, I've got nothing to do with that. I, I don't give that any credence. He really is tied to the Pendragon identity. And he presumably has fought many battles over the years with this chosen weapon, the bat. So it's appropriate that his arsenal contains many bats. Now, why not just one bat? Again, that first bat was Excalibur, the Excalibur, not just some run-of-the-mill Louisville slugger. Even when we see Kevin take up a baseball bat in his battle with the Yowler Ogre in issue number 8, that bat literally dissolves when Kevin is done with it. It's unable to contain or maintain its very shape in the wake of channeling the power of Excalibur. So so think of these as one-shot weapons. Now, honestly, I'm a bit surprised he didn't fashion some kind of way to carry two or more on his back in case the one he used wore out too soon. So picking up the bat, Kevin walks off into the mist, promising his daughter that he'll be back soon. And Kevin comes upon a tribe of redcaps. They're all gathered around. There's at least a hundred of these nasty little bastards gathered around the redcap king. And we get some more of Dave Lanfear's pretty awesome otherworldly lettering as the king is making some pronouncements and he approaches a cauldron full of blood and proceeds to dip his hat, his cap, into it. And this is apparently a cause for great celebration, because you can see the other redcaps going wild in the background, celebrating as he does this. So here's a few things about redcaps. First of all, back in 1978, there was a book that came out called, appropriately enough, Fairies, by Brian Frund, with artwork by Alan Lee. It was a big coffee table style book full of beautiful art and just enough gently winged, winsome looking fairy folk inside so that the unsuspecting parent would look at it and say, hey, this looks neat. It has a bunch of Peter Pan and Tinkerbell like make-believe people in it. Tinkerbell's cool. I'm going to get this for my kid. What you might not notice at first glance, a quick run through, is that almost half the book is also filled with pretty creepy artwork of nasty fairies as well. This is an awesome book. I'll try to post some pictures from it on the podcast Instagram account. I was nine when this particular piece of cultured, kid-friendly entertainment fell into my hands. I remember a handful of things from it. I got the general concept of hollow hills, the dangers of trespassing on fairyland, and the ways that humans could either be at risk or fall under enchantment by the fairy folk. I also remember two fairies very specifically. And while I can't say they scared me per se, they were creepy enough and so well illustrated that they stuck with me to this day. One was the Kelpie. I've discussed these before as uh, one appears in the Mage First Interlude. These are Scottish water spirits. Kelpies usually take the shape of a horse and are known to offer rides to travelers in need, only to drown them. The other was the Red Cap, which was described simply as, quote, one of the most evil of the old border goblins. He lives in old ruined towers and castles, particularly those with a history of wickedness. He redies his Red Cap in human blood. Charming. Imagine my surprise when I encountered them again years later in Mage. Now, these nasty little guys first appeared in Mage the Hero Discovered number 6, and they are, pretty much throughout the entire series, kind of like the ground soldiers of the Umbra Sprite. Most recently, they had been seen taking Hugo away on a school bus. 
Kevin strolls into this celebration, and these little jerks in their signature caps and huge steel boots with pointed spiked cleats and absolutely no idea what pants are come clanging toward him, and he just stands there waiting. And Matt is clearly having fun with big full-page panels. We get this awesome full-page bleed with a small panel at the top that just shows a silhouetted mountain of red caps piling on top of Kevin Matchstick. And below this, dominating the page, we see his arm upthrust out through that pile, the glowing white bat, lightning crackling from it as the red caps are just thrown backwards from the sheer outpouring of energy. He's not even doing anything with the bat. It is just energy at work. And this next sequence is sweet to look at, especially if you want to revisit it in contrast to the scene in uh, Hero Discovered Number 6 when Kevin first encounters Redcaps. Now, in that issue, he is caught off guard. He's shocked, a bit overwhelmed by what he sees, and here he even comments about how scared he was of these nasties and how now it's not even a challenge. It's, you know, they're nothing to him. And... He lets the bat fly, a spinning boomerang slicing through their ranks, and soon he's surrounded by the bodies of defeated redcaps, leaving the chief for Kevin to interrogate, asking where the redcaps took Hugo. And we get a sense of some of the things that Kevin might have been studying or learning over the years. He says that it's a good thing he finally took the time to learn Goblin. Now, I don't know which... Berlitz books cover Goblin, but hey, there are books out there that cover how to speak Elvish for Tolkien. I'm sure that as he's been studying over the years, or maybe Mirth helped point him in the right direction, he's learned it. Kevin returns to Miranda, who has been hiding in the back of the truck, singing to herself to keep up her courage during what must have been a pretty nerve-wracking experience. However, she seems no worse for the wear, a real trooper, and they drive out of the Misty Realms as he tells her that they're going to visit her Auntie Isis. And this is clearly good news for Miranda's enthusiastic response. And I mean, of course, Isis is the coolest of the cool. By the way, as Kevin and Miranda drive out of the Misty Realms, did you notice the sign they drive past? Good old Lanfear used cars and trucks. A nod to the comic series' letter, uh, letterer, David Lanfear. At this point, we switch over to Archer on Insurance, where Alexi has been continuing with just totally ranking on Kevin Matchstick, laughing as she tells them, he's bald, overfed, he looks like a house husband. Now, Carol continues to insist that they should be wary of him, that despite his appearance, he unleashed a power like she has never seen. And another Gracklethorne, I'm not going to look her up right at this moment, responds with a commentary that is really only a thinly veiled allusion to sexual stamina and potency, asking how long he can sustain such vigor that men his age tend to tire easily. And this is in line with Alexi's comment that in many ways, the Gracklethorns kind of have this assault on Kevin's masculinity, making these questions about his... uh, his power, his virility, his vigor. This isn't the first time the Gracklethorns and the Umber Sprite have spoken about Kevin's power in almost sexual terms. I'd have to go back to see if it's the same Gracklethorn all the time, or all of them making these comments at times, but it's definitely a recurring undertone. Now, Zofia, who we don't see completely the way this page is laid out, is clearly doing another one of her more gymnastic dance moves, and her ever-present bloodlust is evident as she opines that his spark will fizzle when they tear one of his imprisoned family members to shreds right in front of him. And to me, this kind of comment really helps highlight that while they are nasty and they are dangerous, these Gracklethorns are young, they are likely untested, and they strike me as pretty inexperienced. Commentaries like this and Lexi's complete hubris, um, they are just wet behind the ears. 
any hero, not just Kevin, any of his Avatar peers, I would wager, you tear a member of their family apart in front of them, and I highly doubt you're going to see their power waver and weaken. Quite the opposite, in fact. Especially with Kevin Matchstick. Um, you know, my thoughts are, that's likely just going to piss him off and probably give him, give him an even stronger surge of power. I mean, just look at the knee-jerk battle reaction he had in Hero Discovered when Edsel is killed. Look at him going to town on the Mound Mountain, uh, on the uh, Man Mountain in Hero Defined after Kirby is brutally injured. Kevin battles first and attends to the wounded after. At least, that's his track record. At this point, uh, I believe it's Sasha comes in to interrupt the argument, telling everyone that they should get back to their duties. The Umbra Sprite's signature uh, pinstriped red suit is strangely enough hanging on a rack nearby as she says this, and it seems that the Umbra Sprite doesn't really need it right now, since it has transformed into a writhing mass of black snakes, very similar to those which had joined together to give it form at the end of the Hero Defined, that place to that point when it resolved into this large, massive shape, picked up Emil, and, well, I don't know, ate him? I'm not really sure where Emil went, or just what caused the return of the Umbra Sprite at that time and in that manner. Still, what comes around goes around. There is a cycle going on here, and I'm sure we're going to see something happening in this issue that reflects it in some way, shape, or form. Emil, in Hero Discovered, engaged in patricide, killing his helpless father at the end of Hero Discovered. In Hero Defined, the Umbra Sprite returns and, well, frankly, returns the favor when committing filicide. That's the act of a parent killing a son or daughter. Now, I'm tempted to get into the symbolism around serpents, both mythological and symbolic, but I'll save that for another time. In the shadow of the huge monstrous painting that I'm expecting is going to play an important role later in the series, the Gracklethorns continue their argument. Basically, Carol continues to voice her concern that they have no fucking plans for when the Pendragon finds their stronghold, and they have no idea when the Umbra Sprite will be able to regain human form. That... These should both be more than slightly worrisome details. Meanwhile, the rest of the Thorns are more than happy to follow Alexei's blind faith in the Umbra Sprite, and that they have nothing to worry about. In fact, nothing is more important than their faith in the Umbra Sprite's ruthless authority. And it is going to be really interesting and Really fun to see what happens when Alexi finally faces down with Kevin. I think she's going to be in for a very rude awakening. That's even assuming that she gets her due, as I'm assuming will happen, uh, against Kevin. She might get it against, you know, who knows? Magda, Hugo, Miranda, some other random force. But I, I really think it's going to be interesting, even even if she is a strong foe, which no doubt she is, she is not up to Kevin Matchstick, and, quite frankly, she's underestimating him way too severely. Meanwhile, shut down, Carol strides off to check on the rescue mansion, and I'm hoping we'll be getting a chance to see that and what's going on with the Fisher King. Emil Grackleflint didn't fare so well when he tried to kill the Fisher King at the end of The Hero Discovered. It left him injured and scarred. The backlash of power when he tried to use his poison spur on the Fisher King, almost melted half his face off. I can't imagine that one of these thorns would manage better. Who knows? I still think that we're possibly seeing Carol not only having a difference of opinion and priorities from her sisters, I've got to wonder if she's on the first steps of a completely different path from them. One less in step with the Umbrus Bright's approach and ruthless authority. I mean, it would fit. Emil constantly chafed and disagreed with the Umbra Sprite's decisions and actions in the Hero Discovered. His path was one of violence. Carol? Well, I think her betrayal could be quite different from his, but no less significant. She is who the Umbra Sprite has called her its 
adept and we're we're already seeing from her she's not champing at the bit to to go to battle um in that way alexi is more reflective of emil minus the questioning of the umbra sprite that eventually came around with emil carol is something different at this point we move on from the villains to check in on magda and hugo hugo is complaining that the tv only plays the same three cartoons over and over again and i'm guessing that none of them are dragon ball magda reminds him that they are in a prison and that he should never forget this don't let the luxurious surroundings lull you into complacency magda then takes some time to warn hugo about their captors so here's a little bit of exposition as she brings him up to date she calls them grackleflints or something very like them and she mentions that fortunately these gracks are confident enough that their merely human prisoners are completely harmless so they've been left unsearched and unsurveilled no security cameras no magical surveillance and that has allowed magda to retain possession of the protection potion that she had around her neck she tells hugo if worst comes to worse, this potion is our last line of defense, our Camelot. Now, this potion was originally discussed as a way to secure a future household from evil. It would be interesting to see what happens if it has to be used in some other manner, on a person or a group of people. Perhaps it could be that when this gets used, Camelot it ends up not being a place, but the family itself. Magda reassures Hugo that his dad is coming for them, and that in the meantime they have to work together, and she's going to have to work up some other magical protections that they can use. At this point, dinner arrives. It is a luscious, stacked tiers of feast with a roast turkey, fish, fruits, vegetables, rack of lamb, baked ham, decadent desserts, and underneath all of it on the table are what looks like trashy leftovers. This all appears amid black magic bubbles, the evil magic equivalent of Mirth's green magic bubbles and Wally Utt's purple magic bubbles. Magda warns Hugo that while the food looks delicious, it's all fairy food, and if they eat it, even a bite, they will never be able to leave. Eating fairy food in the fairy world ties you to the fairy realm in its very, very, very way. In some cases, I've read that fairy food will make all other food taste terrible to humans, and that this can lead to death simply by starvation. Similarly, in some representations of fairy food, eating it may be a delicious experience, but the food doesn't actually fill or nourish the human being eating it, so they could eat and eat and never be satisfied, ultimately starving while they stuff themselves. And some of this might be artistic license, but eating fairy food has always been a no-no. Magda tells Hugo that they were promised that all their needs would be provided, but that Hugo and she can only eat from the lowest tier, the food that looks like it was fished out of a garbage can. And though it may look awful, it's really fine. Hugo doesn't look convinced or thrilled as he bites into a drumstick and begins eating, saying dubiously, doesn't taste too bad. I guess. At this point, we return to Kevin and Miranda arriving at Isis's home. Isis is living in a new place, but it still has the same reduction spell on it that stuffs a much, much larger house into a smaller-looking everyday home. Inside, this place is wild. The comfortable, hippie-ish, bohemian vibe of her former house has given way to a stately, huge library. There are at least four levels of books accessible by bridges and sliding ladders. Readers of Mage 2 should recognize the blue and white VW bus in the driveway. It's not exactly the same as the VW bus that Isis lent to Kevin in issue 4 of Hero Defined, but it's pretty darn close, enough to lend a nice bit of visual continuity. Now, in that issue, um, I'm reminded Kevin uh, was told by Isis that his history is full of tragedy and strife, and Given the current events, that seems to be the status quo for the Pendragon. Isis is the fictional alter ego of Matt Wagner's sister-in-law, former editor of the original Mage the Hero Discovered, 
as well as the consulting editor currently for Hero Defined. In addition, she has worked with quite a few people whose names you might recognize, like Will Eisner, Frank Miller, Neil Gaiman, Michael Chabon, and even the recently departed Harlan Ellison. Diana Schutz is herself an outstanding figure in the field of comics. Kevin brings Isis up to date on the situation, and we find out that the Red Cap told Kevin they were sent on a mission to deliver Hugo to the White Ones. That's it. That's all he knows. Isis lets Kevin know that both Magda and Hugo are definitely alive, and when he questions her, she flares up. You can just see it in her face, both her offense at her abilities being questioned, and of course, this is probably fueled as well by her concern for their safety. She tells Kevin in no uncertain terms that if a third of her sisterhood had perished, she'd know it. The coven would be broken, just as she would feel her sister's anguish over the loss of one of her children. So I think there's a bit of a leap Isis is making here. I mean, we know that Hugo and Magda are together. You know, she's assuming that if Hugo were dead, Magda would even be aware of it. All that our heroes know at this point is that both are missing. Isis leads Kevin and Miranda deeper into the house so they can work on locating the missing family members. And this panel is just tight. Isis working some magic with a glowing crystal ball. Her hair is blown back around her face like she's charged with mystical static electricity. And above the ball are floating pink bubbles. Yellow stars and yellow crescent moons, the magical icons and symbols associated with each of the three hunter sisters. These are the same symbols that surrounded the three sisters during their covening at Kevin and Joe's apartment in The Hero Defined. The colors in this panel really shine too. The brilliant glow of the crystal ball and how it illuminates Isis contrasts with the darker tones in the background where Kevin and Miranda stand watching. And Miranda, when she takes a break from trying to find Auntie Isis's kitty, her familiar Mr. Mosley, well, Miranda's eyes just go wide. This little witch, just coming into her powers, is watching a full-fledged scrying in process. You can almost see the lights turning on, the gears turning, as she sees just a glimpse of what's possible with magic in a way that Perhaps the more circumspect, stay-off-the-radar usage in her home may have never afforded her. Unfortunately, Isis isn't able to locate Hugo and Magda. Direct communication is blocked, and she tells Kevin that wherever she is must be guarded by powerful magic if it's strong enough to sever the bonds of sisterhood. Isis insists that Magda will try to make contact and gives Kevin a scrying glass, a hand mirror that will enable Kevin to receive any messages and scries for Magda, which are sure to come as she tries to get a message out to her family. Meanwhile, Kevin tries to figure out who these white ones are. He notes that all the Grackleflints and Sprigginflints were destroyed years ago. He also at this point tells Isis that he's seen a questing beast twice, and that it was in the company of an imp the second time that he saw the beast. Isis warns Kevin that questing beasts can be an omen of doom as well as reward that often quests are merely paths to damnation, and that Kevin would do well to beware such a beast. But uh, anyone want to bet that Kevin's not likely to listen to that piece of advice if, you know, well, frankly, when an opportunity to find the beast arises again? Kevin asks Isis to watch Miranda for a few days, but she gives this lengthy response about why this is not a good time, and she's not the best person to look after a child of Miranda's age, and this is the only time in hundreds of years that this spell book will be available to be transcribed. And she goes on and on. Kevin looks a little bit less than pleased with the reply, but says it's fine. It was presumptuous of him to even ask, and that Miranda is safest with him anyway. Really, Wagner's use of body language and facial expressions kind of help carry the storytelling in this scene. It's one of the artistic elements I enjoy so much about his work in general, but especially in this series as it kind of comes across that Kevin is a little bit a little bit peeved, but he just doesn't want to get into it. With that, Kevin and Miranda get back into the truck and start driving, not quite sure of where they're going next. Um, 
Miranda tells her dad that she misses Mom and Hugo, that he makes her laugh, he's mirthful, and uh, he sure loves to eat. Speaking of Hugo loving to eat, we return to the villain's lair to see Hugo on the couch, unable to sleep. And saying that all moms worry too much, what could one little bite hurt, he goes into the kitchen, reaches up to the fairy feast, and grabs a big slice of cake. This issue closes with Hugo seated underneath the sparkling fairy food feast. He's already taken a big bite of cake. And in many ways, this makes no fucking sense. He should know better. But I'm going to chalk this up to two things. One, frankly, the narrative demands it. And two, hey, maybe Brennan Wagner was known to raid the fridge at times. Who knows? Maybe this even specifically references a specific incident from his childhood. Again, Matt Wagner, when interviewed, at one point an interviewer said, you drop in breadcrumbs from your real life into Mage. And Matt replied something along the lines of, forget breadcrumbs, I drop whole loaves. So this could just be pure fictional narrative, or who knows, it might also be a a callback to some kind of inside joke or, or experience. Now, I don't know how much of the various fairy food rules Matt intends to apply in this story, or if he even intends to add a few twists of his own, but it's really worthwhile being aware of them. Either way, I think this is a critical moment in the story when it comes to Hugo's future. I mean, there are a few direct outcomes that could be drawn here. First of all, if and when Kevin comes to rescue uh, and the family tries to escape, Hugo's attachment to the fairy realm will prove problematic, to say the least. There's also the question of what's he going to eat moving forward. Again, just traditionally speaking, normal food simply doesn't satisfy mortals after they've eaten fairy food. Now, some say this is because a side effect of eating fairy food causes the human to become part fae, neither fairy nor human entirely anymore. And it does occur to me that in some versions of the Arthurian myths, Merlin is said to be the offspring of a princess who'd become a nun and the devil. In other words, Merlin was not entirely supernatural, nor entirely of this world. I'm just saying. Again, it's uncertain at this point if Matt is pretty much sticking with Kevin as an avatar of the Pendragon. You know, he's already given a significant nod to his other prior incarnation as Gilgamesh, but Kevin is, you know, the identity that he most self-identifies with as the Pendragon. Uh, But if you look at the hero defined, and I think Wally Utt or Mirth even calls him on this, says that he usually had three names for everything that he confronted in Hero Defined. He runs into a monster. He gives it three names. So there's a chance that a third Avatar's meta story is playing out here. Or this is just a brand new one, all Kevin's own. Just as Arthur's tale was unique to him, and Gilgamesh's tale was unique to him as well, even though they were both manifestations of the same hero. Each got their own story. Um, Okay, that's it for this issue. Visit the website or go to the show notes for uh, links to various reviews. I'm going to discuss a few of them here. Most reviewers recognize that this is a bit of a transitional issue, and even with the Red Cap battle, it's a little slowly paced, more family drama or tense thriller than your typical Capes and Cowles Rock'em Sock'em Battle Fest. Dan Traeger at Comic Bastards gives more of an overview and a case for reading Mage the Hero Denied than just a straightforward review. Meanwhile, Pop Cult has some neat comments about the artwork, coloring, and the lettering in this issue. Comic Watch gives a nice recap, highlighted by some big panels illustrating key moments of the issue, including many of the moments referenced specifically in this episode's review of the issue. Michael Penkis at Blackgate has posted his reviews of both issues number 8 and 9. As always, these are really worthwhile reviews from a fan who is just not willing to give the series a 5 out of 5 stars review for each issue just because he has a history with and an obvious love for the books. So, while I'm going to discuss these, I highly recommend that you just follow the links to go read them. It's it's been especially interesting to read these reviews, since Penkis had seemed to move from initial excitement about the series to having some issues with the pacing and possibly the direction and predictability of the story. 
That said, some of what Pencus called the unexpected directions in issue 8 seem to have re-engaged him with the series, and that leads to a fistful of great insights and speculations about the overarching direction of the story, especially in the, uh, in the issue 8 review regarding Miranda and Hugo and the role of women in comics. There's one quote in issue number 8, um, or issue number 9, it's an item I glossed over in my recap and review, so I'm glad that someone addressed this. Penka says, Carol predicts that Miranda will prove a hindrance to Kevin, but I think she will turn out to be just the opposite. Now, I love this idea. Kev's already been thwarted in trying to go solo, and you could almost see his ire, as I said, at Isis when she effusively provided all the reasons why now is not a good time. She's not the right person to watch over Miranda, yada, yada, yada. And I, I'm not sure that Kevin has a long list of second options. I mean, there's Trish, the youngest Hunter sister, but when we last saw her, she didn't really seem like the look-after-little-kids type. It has been just over ten years in story time, though, when people change, so who knows? I... Don't see Kevin willing to take his daughter straight into the enemy's stronghold if he could possibly avoid it. But things could develop in a way that make that um, impossible to avoid and also makes her a more valuable ally than a hindrance. As I mentioned in the last episode, it finally occurred to me that Miranda always has that heart symbol shirt on and while she's definitely a witch, that really resonates for me as also defining her as a hero. Um... In the interview uh, on the Can I Twip It podcast, Matt actually discusses this. Eli and Manis ask some specific questions about the avatars having these logo shirts. And Matt replies that, in many ways, this is just a superhero thing, and that even Magda's beauty mark star is a, uh, a take on this. So maybe this doesn't mean that Miranda is a hero, per se, but... I think we're definitely going to see each of the kids have their own arc in this series. Again, check out the Blackgate review uh, for issue number eight, linked in the podcast notes, for uh, some thoughts about this. The Blackgate review of issue number nine is also worth reading, containing way more than I could cover here about it. Pencus goes a bit further into discussing the moment where Kevin asks Isis to watch Miranda and she refuses. I uh, I completely agree with his take on this scene and the underlying dynamics that seem to be at play. Pencus's comment in this ish, in this review about uh, Hugo's decision to eat the fairy food cake, quite frankly, is laugh out loud funny. And he raises a really good point mentioning, you know, that at this time, the questing beast and the Fisher King are just out there like some fairly irrelevant MacGuffins. And... You know, this does come across as frustrating in light of what Wally Utt outright told Kevin at the end of Hero Defined that he should be defending the light, seeking the Fisher King. Now, I'm not surprised to see the questing beast dropped for now. Kevin's angst-driven casting around for a direction that in many ways led him to the questing beast have been resolved by the enemy handing him a very pressing course of action to pursue— but I'm sure it will be back. The Fisher King hasn't been seen, at least to my knowledge. I guess I could pour over panels and panels and panels since the ending of The Hero Discovered. But, you know, in many ways, The Fisher King was pretty much a MacGuffin in The Hero Discovered as well, a reason to kick and keep things in motion, Mage's Maltese Falcon, if you will. With Carol telegraphing a visit to the mission in issue 10, Maybe we'll get something happening here, but with the Umbra Sprite in its current state, the Thorns don't really have a way to tell which of their candidates actually are the Fisher King, if any. I mean, it does beg coincidence that the Fisher King would have managed to move across the country to exactly the same city as its greatest and most dangerous enemy. Just, you know, as it happened to be in the same city as the Styx Hotel. But... That's not an uncommon coincidence in adventure stories. It would be a much longer, different story if Kevin and the Umbra Sprite were carrying out a nation or even worldwide search for the Fisher King. Still, it's a bit frustrating that Kevin has spent so much time since the hero defined 
only to go on fighting nasties until he got fed up with the entire experience. And then he just shoved the whole thing. Even when he's researching, it appears to have been centered around expanding his knowledge about myths and monsters in a way related to nasty bashing. We've at least seen no distinct sign that he's tried to figure out his role in relation to the Fisher King or locate the Fisher King. I mean, he even says as much earlier in the series that he's got no idea what to do. In his defense, it's not like there's a guidebook out there. Michael Pincus does raise another good point that if the Umbra Sprite hadn't put a bounty on Kevin, he'd be completely clueless about them and not even be in a position to possibly thwart them. However, they don't know that. For all they know, for all the Umbra Sprite and the Gracklethorns know, Kevin's been an active, albeit stealthy hero for the last decade, and a viable threat instead of a warrior who had taken himself off the battlefield. And one last point. Pencus mentions the loose connection or seeming disconnection between real people and characters in this story. Now, since Mage is a semi-autobiographical uh, story, again, what Matt calls an allegorical autobiography, uh, one of the disconnects that Pencus mentions is how Kirby Hero is dead, but the real-life artist he was based on, Bernie Moreau, is still alive. Or Bernie Miro rhymes with zero. And that's true. But Matt has made mention in the past that Kirby Hero morphed over the course of Hero Defined to actually map more to another person with whom Matt has an even longer history. As I believe I've mentioned in a past episode, it's my completely uninformed opinion and intuition that this is likely the same person who may have inspired or been reflected in Sean Knight from The Hero Discovered. And that said, the death of Kirby Hero doesn't necessarily need to map to an actual death in the real world. Pencus points out that reviewing a comic which contains analogs to real-life people can be tricky. You don't want to comment about the behavior of a character and have that confused with commentary about a real person. And I've had to juggle with this dilemma as well at times, and I feel that ultimately you have to review the story as a story and consider the autobiographical elements to be cool Easter eggs. And again, many of them probably not quite specifically on the nose. Uh, the bankruptcy of a comic company allegorically appeared as the shattering of Excalibur, a baseball bat. Um, so allegorical autobiography or not, Matt still has to create a story here that makes sense in its own world in a narrative arc. And life, real life, is never quite so neatly defined or paced as fiction. Either way, uh, great reviews. I know that I dug into them quite a bit with a lot of sidelong commentary about them, but they are really worth reading. There's more in them than just what I just talked about. And I'd like to thank uh, Michael for the occasional shout-out that he's uh, given the podcast in his reviews. And with that, let's go on to the letter column. If you'll recall, Matt held one of his mage contests, asking people to name two authors whose works have influenced his own creative efforts and career. Back around issue five, I'd been wrestling with this on the podcast, trying to figure out the name of the author on the book that Kevin holds on the cover of that issue. The first name, Joseph, was easy if you'd read any interviews with Matt since The Hero Discovered, referencing Joseph Campbell. But the second name eluded me, and now that it's been revealed, I, I wanted to smack myself in the forehead, because in a way, it's completely obvious. And secondly, because I was a voracious reader of this author's works for many years. Stuart Nager is the first letter uh, writer in this issue's letter column, and was the grand prize winner, guessing these authors as being Joseph Campbell and Michael Moorcock. Stuart cites the influences on Kevin's story, he overcomes obstacles, he claims rewards, he lives a hero's life in stages, and of course Campbell wrote of the three stages of a hero's journey, and Michael Moorcock wrote his Eternal Champion series. Now, For those unfamiliar with the Eternal Champion, a vast amount of Michael Moorcock's fictional works tell the stories and adventures of multiple heroes in different times, different worlds, even different dimensions. He was one of 
the earlier science fiction writers to really just go to town with the concept of a multiverse as a storytelling environment. And in the Eternal Champion series, as as they get tied together by some key books here and there, they are all incarnations of the same soul, if you will, the Eternal Champion. And only one of these incarnations, some might say the original, is aware of its fate and multiple identities. Now, there's much more to it than that. And again, the Eternal Champion story spans many, many uh, series, uh, each with multiple books inside of them, with the occasional, sometimes contradictory crossovers. But with Kevin Matchstick being a reincarnation, if you will, of at least two prior heroes, as well as other heroes as avatars of heroic mythical figures, the influence there is pretty clear. I'm pretty sure I recognize Stuart's name from other mage letter columns, but I'm going to resist the urge to go looking through back issues at this time. Congrats to Stuart and the other contest winners, Ron Quinn, Peter Aronoff, Jesse Siebeck, and Ralph Jenkins. The next letter is from Sonny Strait, a former self-published comic book artist and currently a cartoon voice actor, having voiced characters in the Dragon Ball series. So, given the Dragon Ball references in Mage 2, he wrote in to let Matt and Brennan know that the voice of two Dragon Ball characters is a fan of the series. Mike Belcher wrote in with his Mage story, by way of Matt's run on the demon, and then Grendel is how he came to Mage. And in a story that resonates with other fans, Mike tells how he shared his love of Mage with his son through collected issues of Discovered and Defined, and how they are now both enjoying reading Hero Denied together, and that all prompted some really neat comments back from Matt about sharing movies and stories with his kids, and that now as adults, they return the favor. Last of all, Nathan Cable writes in um, as another person who essentially grew up with Kevin Matchstick and Mage. Writing in from Australia, Nathan comments on Matt's ability to make Kevin, quote, so damn personable and believable, as one of the things that brought him back from multiple binge readings over the years. In the same spirit as Michael Belcher, Nathan includes a photo of his son wearing his old mage shirt, again, growing the fan base in the family. All right, that is this week's episode of Mage the Hero Described Podcast. Well, this month's, this issue's episode of the Mage the Hero Described Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review issue number 10. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts you'd like to share, or if you'd like to share your very own mage moments, as I discussed earlier in the podcast episode, you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch at the magetheherodescribed.com website. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of mage comics, images and scenes that were mentioned in the podcast and more. Actually, most imagery has moved over to a much more um, stream of consciousness Instagram account, uh, which I will then update with a tassel of imagery referenced in this episode as well. Uh, You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast, gallery, or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks, skywriting, you name it, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really does help other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.